Hello and welcome to the Action for Happiness podcast, where we have conversations with leading experts and inspiring people about what really matters for a happy and meaningful life. I'm your host, Guy, and alongside me as always is my good friend, Anne. In this month's episode, we speak with the amazing Daniel Goleman. I came back to Harvard and I said, you know, uh, we really should be studying meditation. And they said, that is the stupidest idea we've ever heard. <laughs> there was only one person who thought that made sense. His name was Richard Davidson. The students who had the mindfulness training did 30% better on their scores. A psychologist and science journalist, Daniel wrote the book on emotional intelligence, which has remained a bestseller for over 20 years. And he joins us via Skype to share some really interesting perspectives about his latest book, The Science of Meditation, which will be known as Altered Traits in the US. Daniel, what I loved about your new book, The Science of Mindfulness, was that it was an opportunity for you and an old friend, Richard Davidson, to reconnect touch base again and put down on paper the stories that you both shared together for the past 30 or so years. We'd love to kick this podcast off, if you can. Tell us how you and Richard first met and how the amazing journey led to this book. You know, I was very fortunate uh, when I was a graduate student at Harvard, I got a traveling fellowship that allowed me to go to India. Uh, I was in India a total of two years in my grad school and postgraduate days. And my interest was meditation. And I was fortunate to stumble into a situation in Bogaya, India, where one of the few then teachers of mindfulness uh, was in residence. His name was Manindraji, and he had a favorite student whose name was Joseph Goldstein. Joseph, of course, was the one who went on to spearhead the movement of insight meditation uh, no, better known as mindfulness in America. Yeah. And uh, Manindra invited his friend, um, a Burmese, Buddha, uh, Burmese businessman named S.N. Goenka to come and teach. And I did, along with others, including Sharon Salzberg, who's another of the Pasta uh, sure. teachers, uh, we did uh, several 10-day courses, I think, four or five in a row. Yeah. And it was extremely powerful for me. Uh, I had also been with Nimkroli Baba, who was known then as Ram Das's guru. He was an old yogi who um, was quite remarkable in terms of his quality of beings. I mean, he was absolutely present. He was unstoppably happy. And he made you feel the same way when you were with him. And I thought, you know, I'm studying clinical psychology at Harvard, and we're really interested in all of the downers about human uh, emotions. Depression, anxiety, trauma. Mm -hmm. We haven't looked at the positive end. And, you know, these Asian cultures know a lot of value about what that positive end would look like. In fact, there are beings there who've accomplished the height of that. And they have a map. And that map, again, one of the maps begins with mindfulness. So I thought, this is great news. I'm going to rush back to Harvard and tell them all about this wonderful possibility for psychology. So I come back to, I, I've written an article about it in an obscure journal, and I came back to Harvard and I said, you know, uh, we really should be studying meditation. And 
our research. And they said, that is the stupidest idea we've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. There was only one person who thought that made sense. His name was Richard Davidson. Mm -hmm. He was a first-year graduate student. And Richie and I became very close friends. We both did our dissertation research. We both did our dissertation research, uh, despite all the warnings against it, on meditation. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, when we did those studies, there were two articles in the entire scientific literature on meditation of any kind. One was on Zen, and one was on uh, yogic meditation. Yeah. From today's standards, they were terrible, but it, it was the only straws we had to grasp. Yeah. So today, when, when Richie and I have, have written this book, uh, The Science of Meditation in the UK, it's called there are over 6,000 peer-reviewed journal articles on meditation. Uh, many of them do not meet the highest standards, like our own dissertation research. So we've, particularly Richie, has come through and found the top quality, the most methodologically sound uh, A-level articles. Those are the ones we summarize. We also talk about some of the problems with the research. For example, uh, our friend John Kabat-Zinn, who we've known since our Cambridge days, went on to found mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, mm -hmm. which is probably the single most researched kind of meditation today. Mm -hmm. Richie uh, has done research with Johnny, and he did one study which is very telling, which is why we could find only about 50 A-level studies. Uh, he took a random sample people and assign them at random to either MBSR or what's called an active control, something that people feel just as positive about, that requires just as much time commitment. It was things like exercise and nutrition, but doesn't involve any mindfulness. And what he found was that there was no difference between that group and the MBSR group in subjective feelings about how, how much better I feel. The report, self-reports were basically the same. The differences have turned out to be much more interesting. They're more biological. That you get benefits from mindfulness, for attention, for uh, calming the, the reactive emotional brain, that you don't see from these active controls. And that's what we focused on, the, the true benefits that, you, that are unique to mindfulness. But that, that last point about calming the reactive emotions to the brain, and in the book, you mentioned the Dalai Lama saying that if, if anything can, you know, his, his belief that the destructive emotions, if we can, if mindfulness can calm that aspect, I'm wondering about, you know, how hopeful could we be in bringing this into maybe more deprived parts of the UK, the US, where there's a lot of gang violence and in schools in, you know, yeah. Because from destructive emotions, I would I would imagine that that could lead to destructive, you know, self harm or behavior within the community. And absolutely. So you know, behind every uh, act of brutality, violence, and suicide is uh, destructive emotion. And the Dalai Lama says emotion becomes destructive when it throws you off balance. In the West, we would say when it leads you to harm yourself or other people. And uh, Richie and I convened a meeting with the Dalai Lama and some scientists some years ago, and he said something very important. He said, 
my own tradition, Buddhism, has many methods for calming the mind and transforming destructive emotions, uh, mindfulness being one, but one of many. And he said, I urge you as scientists to take them out of the religious context, study them very rigorously in the lab, and if they're a benefit to people, spread them as widely as you can. And I think uh, it helps to understand the different levels of meditation. There's the, you know, the uh, hardcore, old-school, monks in Asia kind of the meditation. Yogi, yeah. Yogi, yogis in India, whatever it may be. And that's it, uh, absolutely within a religious context. Then there's the way those traditions have been brought to America, so, or to Britain, or to the West generally. Yeah. And they've been toned down. So you might, for example, go to an insight meditation retreat. That's mindfulness squared. Yeah. Uh, that's mindfulness derives from insight meditation. Well, that might be in a light Buddhist context, but the point is really the meditation practice. But a lot's been left behind. Then there are further removes. So MBSR is completely secular. So the John the John Kabat-Zinn courses, right? Yes. Or mindfulness as, as it's taught in business, yeah. for example, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with any uh, traditional spiritual uh, lineage, but it has the core of the method, and the method retains its active, say, neurological effects. So people get to better. And then there's a further remove, which are the kind of apps and so on that go on, uh, which are, you know, five minutes a day to feel better kind of thing. So, the, uh, to speak to your point about could this help, for example, with gang violence, one of the places or sectors in which mindfulness is being used is in schools. Because if you can get to kids very early and help them do practices like mindfulness regularly, you actually help their brain manage their anger better, which means extrapolating into the future, they're not going to be so explosive. I was in a school in Spanish Harlem, I don't know the equivalent in London, but in New York City, it's one of the poorest areas, yep. poorest neighborhoods in, in the whole city. Mm -hmm. And the kids there grew up in what, what we call housing projects in the States, and uh, uh, they're on welfare. They're very poor, they're dirt poor, and they have traumatic backgrounds, and they see people being shot, and you can't imagine what it's like to have that kind of childhood. And yet, and yet, I saw seven-year-olds do an uh, exercise they call breathing buddies, where they, one by one, they get their favorite stuffed animal, they find a place to lie down on the rug, they put it on their tummy, and they watch it rise on the in-breath and fall on the out-breath and rise on the They count one, two, and what they're doing is mindfulness. But it's mindfulness at a seven-year-old level. Yeah. But if you do that at each, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, th these programs are called social-emotional learning, uh, and they're in many, many schools, particularly schools in neighborhoods like that, because the data shows that over the long term, this helps kids stay on track, not go to, you know, do something that'll get them thrown in prison, not become an addict, yeah. get a good job, have a family. And that's really, uh, you know, it's an act of uh, good citizenship to teach this to kids. So I think that, in terms of prevention, uh, that's the most powerful use of mindfulness. And another point that you mentioned in your book, and it's something that I'm guilty of as well, it's 
when I try and explain mindfulness to people, I talk about how the brain changes shape. And then I refer to the amygdala and I say, yeah, you do eight weeks of meditation, the amygdala shrinks and the amygdala is responsible for the negative stuff. And, you know, and for, for a long time, I thought that I was, you know, that I was accurately representing what actually, what actually happened. So as I know you mentioned that in your book, so can you perhaps ex explain, you know, at a high level, you know, what happens to the brain when we meditate and what are some of the misconceptions? Yeah. So um, what you said was a classic piece of neuromythology mm -hmm. and it's quite widespread, yes. particularly as people are kind of hyping the science about mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't to say nothing happens, quite a bit does happen. It's just that not everything claimed, <laughs> particularly by people who are popularizing these methods, mm -hmm. actually does seem to happen from a scientific point of view. So uh, some of the benefits of mindfulness right at the beginning are quite surprising, actually. One of them is sharpening attention. Uh, and this, the, the neural substrate, the neural basis of that is not yet known, but we know from cognitive science measures that mindfulness does help people pay attention better. For example, if you're a multitasker, you know, you're concentrating on this thing you're writing or this, this email or this project, and then you think, oh, I better check my email, my Facebook, my Instagram, what, whatever. And then, you know, minutes later, maybe an hour later, who knows, you go back to that project after multi, so-called multi <laughs> yeah. multitasking itself is, is a neuromythology. Yes. The brain doesn't do simultaneous things. It switches rapidly. Yeah. So when you go back to that first thing you're highly concentrated on, your concentration is much, much worse. And it takes a while to ramp up. Unless, and this is very interesting, unless you've done mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness seems to buffer the loss of concentration mm -hmm. uh, from multitasking. And so it enhances the ability to focus. Well, that, that's pretty simple because in mindfulness, for example, if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, the point is to keep your attention on your breath. The mind's going to wander. It wanders on average 50% of the time in a daily life. Mm -hmm. So your mind wanders off. And then you notice it wandered. That's the moment of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And you bring it back to, the, to your breath. Yeah. That strengthens the neural connectivity for mindfulness. And there's a study out of uh, Emory University that showed the longer people have done meditation, the stronger the circuitry for that seems to be. And so uh, focusing concentration is one benefit. Another is what's called working memory. Working memory is... The fact that when you pay attention to what you're hearing right now, that or, or learning right now if you're a student, that goes into a, what's called working memory, which is short-term, gets transferred to long-term memory, and then later you can call it, recall it. Mm -hmm. That's what we call learning. Yeah. So when they taught students at the University of California this method, they were surprised that on their graduate school entrance exams, the students who had the mindfulness training did 30% better on their scores yeah. than a, a comparable group of, of students. Well, that's astounding. Yeah. Then you uh, mentioned the amygdala. The amygdala is the brain's radar for threat. It's the trigger for the fight or flight or freeze. Yeah. It's what it makes people violent. It's what makes people go off the deep end behaviorally. And the amygdala does a lot of things, but that's one of the things that we wish it would not do as much. Yeah. 
the amygdala is inhibited by circuitry from the prefrontal cortex, the brain's executive, right behind the forehead. And one benefit of mindfulness and continuing to meditate seems to be that the control circuitry for the amygdala gets stronger so that you can manage your amygdala hijacks, if you will, yeah. better. Particularly, you can't determine when you're going to feel anger or how angry you're going to feel. Your choice point is in how long you feel it. Yeah. And meditation, mindless, reduces the recovery time. In other words, you recover more quickly. Mm -hmm. That's very powerful. All right. Well, so I've been meditating for three years now. And um, one thing that struck me when I was reading the book, Altered Traits, was you, you spoke of, um, when meditating, the idea of sustained concentration. Now, ever since I've meditated, I, I've realized that I can't stop the thoughts from happening, but I'm getting better at noticing them when they arise. And then to use the expression, nip it in the bud. So I sit down for my meditation and uh, what am I going to have for lunch? Ah, oh, that's a thought back to my concentration and so three years deep I'm getting better at noticing thoughts up ah, there's a thought no focus on the breath up ah, there's a thought focus on the breath but w where I feel I'm not making progress and I don't know if necessarily it's progress is the sustained period of concentrating on the breath without that distraction of the thought so I think that one of the common misunderstandings about meditation and mindfulness is that the idea is to stop thought. It's actually not the main idea. The idea is to change your relationship. Yes, yes. Which is so, what, yeah. Which is, which is what you described. So the, the mind is designed to generate thought. And when you keep your mind on one thing, say your breath, thoughts will still come up. True. And it's not that you should suppress it or get angry at yourself that I'm having that thought. I shouldn't be, you know, judge yourself. It's not that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is simply to see the thought, recognize it as a thought, and then as you change your relationship to the thought, for example, you name it as a thought, mm -hmm. uh, it actually does something neurally. This is research from UCLA. Uh, it shifts, it lowers the energy in the part of the brain that's having the thought and increases energy in the part of the brain that just knows it. So that it, the thought tends to end sooner once you know it's just a thought. Yeah. If you think the thought, oh my gosh, it's lunchtime, <laughs> I, could, I could go and get fish and chips. Wouldn't yeah. that be great? You're thinking, you're lost in the thought. Thank you for the English reference there, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, that being the case, I, the, being, the, let me say it this way. Being able to change your relation to the thought gives you a choice point that you did not have before. Yeah. And that is, do I want to get lost in this thought? Do I want to pursue it? Or do I want to just let it go? Yeah. Usually we, we are chased by our thoughts. We don't ever let them go. But when you're mindful, you have that choice. So I shouldn't beat myself up too much that I'm not achieving this point of sustained concentration where I could just focus on the Beth for lazy. Like I can't even go 10 seconds without. Uh, I, I would recommend you that you change your idea of what sustained concentration means. Mm. 
and that you okay. allow sustained concentration to be both awareness of the breath and awareness that thoughts are thoughts. Ah, okay. That's sustaining concentration. I would say that's sustaining concentration. You're listening to the Action for Happiness podcast. I'm your host, Guy. And today we're speaking with author, science journalist and psychologist, Daniel Goleman. Visit actionforhappiness.org for all our podcasts and information. What is an altered trait? Given that that is the, the, the title of your book that's going to be in the US, um, you know, Anne and I have an answer here, but perhaps you can explain for our listeners, um, you know, why did you go with that title for the name of the book? Well, the title is uh, in contrast to altered states. Altered states are temporary conditions. Uh, you can have an altered state uh, on a drug because it changes your brain chemistry. You could have an altered state during meditation uh, because you're feeling really great and in flow because you're so focused. Mm-hmm. However, once you stop the meditation, or once you, the drug passes from your body, uh, so does the state. Traits are different. Traits are lasting changes. When you uh, go to the gym every day and you work out, you get very buff and you're you're very muscular. You can say that your fitness level is a trait. It lasts and it's there, you can call on it outside the gym. The same with meditation. Meditation is an act of mental fitness. So you're uh, focusing on your breath, you're enhancing your concentration, you're strengthening your ability to manage the amygdala and mm-hmm. emotional hijacks. And the more you do it, the more you can call on those capacities or they manifest in your everyday life. That's the trait. Right. It doesn't have, it's not just something that yeah. happens in meditation. So is the expression alter trait, is that similar to awakening then? You know, you mentioned... Yes, yes. Or is awakening a combination of altered traits? Uh, so every spiritual tradition that uses meditation as its core path talks about a level of enlightenment or awakening or liberation mm-hmm. that is, uh, marks the end of that path. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the descriptors for all traditions of that, you're seeing a description of lasting traits. You're kind to everyone. You're equanimous under all conditions. Yeah. Uh, you're, you know, you have a laser-like focus and presence. Uh, the, these are qualities that are that define who you are now. So they're lasting traits, but they're super positive lasting traits. Yeah, I would say. Well, I was I was thinking about um, given the benefits that it could have, say, the impact on education on we touched on sort of gangs and stuff like that and so the idea is worth spreading um so one of the expressions i heard one of the concerns i heard about this wave this tsunami um uh, uh, the popularity of mindfulness is muck mindfulness and you know we should be cautious in how it spread so you know we mentioned apps and youtube videos and you know various you know so many books that are out what, what would be the best way to sort of sh- share the idea to as many people as possible, given that it's beneficial mm-hmm. to all? Um, how, how do we go about, would, would an app be an appropriate introduction to mindfulness? I mean, uh, I have no problem uh, with an app as a way to go to scale. Uh, 
I think that uh, some of the objections come from uh, people who are worried that all, all other people will know about is the app, the kind of uh, wide, most widely scaled but not very deep version of meditation, mm. when in fact that's like the fourth level. Uh, you can do it uh, in a context where you go much more deeply. In fact, our research seems to suggest that if you go on a retreat where you meditate for hours day after day, you make more progress in that path uh, than if you do an app five minutes a day. But if you do an app five minutes a day, that may be better than not doing it at all. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there are some very good meditation apps out, um, and I, I'm not uh, going to endorse any given one, but I think that uh, having a, a teacher in the app who is highly seasoned is a, is a good, uh, yeah. good idea. So you mentioned the deep aspect of mindfulness. Now, this is kind of a subject that I, I really love to talk about. And, um, you know, you mentioned Joseph Goldstein. Um, you know, I read his book on mindfulness and, you know, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and in and in Altered Traits, you mentioned that you went to learn from Manindra, you know, his his teacher as well. And, you know, subsequently I've read books by Sam Harris where, you know, the book's called, you know, Waking Up. And the idea of, you know, the self being an illusion and the ego being an illusion, you know, the, and for me, you know, that's the kind of philosophical side that we, Anne and I love to talk about, you know, the deeper, you know, you know, is this a, almost a game? You know, if we're spending 50% of the day in this zombie mode, if you like, where our physical bodies are here, but the mind is elsewhere, you know, where is the mind going to? And also... When I close my eyes and I meditate and I'm in the present moment, I'm not thinking about the past. You know, where is this space that I'm actually in in that moment? And I and I love that's why Joseph Goldstein, when I read his books, you know, he touches upon that so much. So when you refer to the the, the deep the deep side of mindfulness, you know, is that what you're referring to? The idea of the self being an illusion as well. You know, the the Buddha said it very well. He used the metaphor of a chariot. He said. There are the wheels, and there's the platform you stand on, and there's the hitch to the horse, and so on. Those are the parts, but where is the chariot? There actually is no chariot. Right. It deconstructs into those parts. Mm -hmm. And the cognitive science knows well now that this self as we experience, the me, the I, the guy who goes to get the chips, yeah. whoever we think we are, <laughs> is, uh, is an aggregate of several modules of cognition that are sewn together, stitched together repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And in, uh, for example, insight meditation, which Joseph Goldstein teaches, uh, you deconstruct those modules and you see more deeply into the mind mm -hmm. and the uh, so-called illusion of self becomes very clear to you. So that is a, that's a deep uh, insight yeah. And it's something that you would get, say, on a retreat. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of thing that will happen to you if you do mindfulness for you know, 10 minutes, 20, 30 minutes a day. Uh, but it is the classical path mm -hmm. uh, or part of it. Well, uh, Richie Davidson and I were quite amused when we looked at all the scientific literature to see that um, the idea of self and how meditation has 
affect that is the least researched area. Yeah. Uh, and because when you look at it from a spiritual point of view, it's the most important. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Well, you know, we look at it now and it's like, well, we know that through mindfulness that we, we are am even when we are not thinking. And especially when we're not thinking, you know, we're almost more true to our real selves when we are not in that state of thinking. Sam Harris in Waking Up is very eloquent on this point. I love that book, yeah. 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 So Sam, Joseph, Sharon Salzberg, myself, and my wife traveled to Nepal together to study with uh, a Nepali uh, Tibetan Buddhist master named Tulka Ergin. Mm-hmm. He writes about that. He said, yeah, he speaks about Ergin in his book, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, my wife and I are still students of his sons. He's passed away. But mm-hmm. Mingyur Rinpoche, who's one of his sons, was also Richie's star uh, mm-hmm. Olympic-level meditator as yeah. a subject in terms of his brain function. So that particular tradition, which is called Dzogchen, yes. uh, encourage, allows you to experience the kind of gap between the thoughts, mm-hmm. which is when nothing's, and then to uh, expand that so that it is kind of an underpinning of everything else that goes on. That's yeah. the idea. Yeah. I can't say that that's me, but that's, I think it's Tolka Urgen. Yeah. I think it's Vingya uh, Rinpoche. I think it's people who have done this well. Mm-hmm. But the more you, you uh, go in that direction, uh, I think the more progress is made on the path. Yeah, because, you know, not, not, not to push the point too much, but, you know, Anne and I talk for hours. It's like, well, when we, in our meditation, and we take that breath, and we're not in the past, or we're not in the future, and we're, we're trying to feel where is the breath the strongest and where we're trying to be present. It almost propels you into this existence where the almost the physical form has no, no effect and your ideas of who you are as a person and the job that you have and the lessons that you learn, they all come to fruition in a thought that you're having in this present moment. Yeah, and I think that background awareness of the spaciousness that surrounds all of that uh, changes your relationship to how you live your life. Just as what we were saying, being mindful changes your relationship to your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Those are the, you know, our lives are the outcomes of all of our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if you have a a wider sense of what's going on that sees it just as play, that that gives you a, a degree of freedom you didn't have before. Yeah, so I was recently reading from uh, one of the organisers from Google's Search Inside Yourself program, and he, 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 he mentions that uh, mindfulness is the foundation of emotional intelligence. So I thought, you know, this and the work that you're most sort of known for is, uh, you know, what is the relationship and can you elaborate sure. on that? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you're talking about the book by Meng, Meng Shanon. Yes. Yeah, so Meng invited me to Google to talk about emotional intelligence. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because Google is so IQ-focused. You have to have a legendary, you have to have an IQ of 99% percentile just to apply for a job there. Yeah. Uh, a very high IQ place. 
I, I, let me say something about that, by the way. There was just a paper published showing that uh, after an IQ of about 120, there's no relationship between IQ and success in a career. Uh, and in order to get an advanced degree, like a master's or an MBA or be an engineer, you need an IQ of around 115. So what that's saying is that those degrees get you in the door, but they don't guarantee you'll be the leader or the best team. This is an aside, but just to say, so, okay, so I was bemused. I went to Google. The room was packed. They had to, you know, uh, video it into other rooms where people were watching. People were highly interested. I was surprised. So Meng leveraged that interest into uh, a course in Google University called Search Inside Yourself, right. which was the basis for his book. And he wanted to integrate mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And I think that they integrate very smoothly because the first part of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. That then becomes the basis for self-management. We've been talking about that. Mindfulness is self-awareness uh, in essence. Yeah. And so that turns out to be the foundational uh, ability in emotional intelligence. The four parts are mm -hmm. self-awareness, self-management. That's You can't manage yourself if you're not aware. Yeah. Then there's empathy, being aware of other people, tuning into them. Mm -hmm. And then there's putting that all together in relationship skills. Yeah. So I, I agree with Mang that uh, mindfulness is applied self-awareness and that this is the foundational skill. Not to say that you couldn't be emotionally intelligent without doing mindfulness. Many people are very good at that, but yeah. you do need some kind of self-awareness yeah. in order to be strong in that way. We're coming to, to a close on the podcast and one question that we love to ask at the, at the end of the podcast. Well, two, I mean, you can ask that. Go, go ahead, go ahead. But the first one is um, these things, you know, mobile phones. And I know you mentioned it. I, I actually wasn't able, because I was volunteering for the Action for Happiness and I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't there when you, when, you, when you talked about technology. And, and I'm always quite concerned because I'm a teacher. Um, so my students range from... 16 all the way up to you know 72 so it's a it's a it's a college and but you know the majority 16 17 18 year olds are just completely hooked on their mobile phones you know um and that i i think taking them away from 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 being present you know their minds are just and i and it's a big concern in the classroom put your phones away and we use the technology you know because there's obviously many useful um, aspects of a mobile phone that I, I, I incorporate into my teaching, but I have to warn them, stay away from your Facebook, your Instagram, your WhatsApp. And, and so what's your view on the negative parts? Because we know technology is useful. I mean, we're using Skype now. So, you know, that speaks for itself. But what, what concerns are there about the overuse and social media and... Yeah, so, and that's such a good question. Really important. I feel that uh, today's kids, particularly, are in danger of being de-skilled in a number of crucial ways because of mobile phones, particularly, or, or technology generally. And it's because they're so seductive and they draw us away. They draw us away from our family. They draw us away from other kids. You know, kids um, text each other. They don't talk. It's unbelievable. So, Ten-year-old boy riding a bike texting. Uh, in other words, 
emotional intelligence skills, being able to relate to other people, to connect to people, to manage yourself, all of those are learned in life, and they're learned from interactions, they're learned from modeling. One reason I feel it's so important to teach these skills in school is exactly because of the rise of technology. Kids are spending more and more hours staring at a screen and less and less present to the people in their lives. I mean, not just teachers, parents, other kids. And the brain is designed to learn how to manage your emotions, to learn how to interact, how to empathize, how to tune in, how to be a good member of a team in life from other people, not from a phone. And the phone draws us away. This is the biggest negative. It's, it's an enormous seductive distraction from what we need to learn in life. There's also, we receive five times more information than we did 20 years ago. And the, um, the, Herb, the Herbert Simon quote that, you know, what information consumes is attention. And I think that that's a really pertinent and really, um, you know, and a, a great quote to kind of like summarize that, that the whole thing. Yeah, so Herbert Simon was a uh, really pioneering genius cognitive scientist. He said in the 70s, what information consumes is attention. Crazy. So a wealth of information, which we have now, means a poverty of attention, yes. which I think is another reason mindfulness is so important for all of us, particularly for kids. All right. And Final question. Yeah, so uh, Action for Happiness uh, runs an eight-week course exploring what matters. And uh, one of the questions we ask participants to, to think about is what matters most in life? So uh, so with all our guests, we, we like to pose that question. <laughs> mm. So we wanted to ask you, Dan, Daniel Goldman, you know, what matters most in life to you? You know, I think it was pretty well summarized in a book I wrote for the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday called The Force for Good. Uh, everything he said, thank you very much, Force for Good. <laughs> and uh, he, he makes the point that what makes life meaningful is being able to turn things in a better direction. In whatever way our particular position, our particular skill set, our particular sphere of influence allows. Each of us has some impact we can make. Uh, and what he urges is just act now in whatever way you can, whatever you're most passionate about, uh, whatever you're best at, whatever will make the most difference. Uh, and that, that's very different for each of us, but do it now, even if you won't see the fruits of your action in your own lifetime. Just get that force going in the right direction. I think that's what makes life if someone wants to find out a bit more or get in contact with you, follow the work that you're doing, you know, what is the, what is the best way in which they can do that? Uh, I have a, a website people can contact me at, uh, it's called uh, danielgorman.info. Mm -hmm. Very straightforward. All right. Well, you know, thank you so much, Daniel, for doing this. You know, I actually have one of my former bosses, Todd, you know, when I told him that I was going to podcast with you, he almost fell off his chair you know he's a, a huge fan of yours and like i said we read emotional intelligence a force for good and i have now we you know liz sent it to us you know uh, i think it was friday or saturday so we've been cramming it over the weekend you know yeah. but it's you know it's 
it's absolutely um, resonates with us and we feel that like I said it's very rarely you read a book on mindfulness that you think it could be turned into a movie <laughs> you know what I mean the stories of you and Richie in India I mean in the 70s I can't even imagine what the sanitation was like or the toilets you know the food when you guys went so you know it's a truly incredible honor to be speaking with you. Thank you very, thank you very much for doing it. Real, real pleasure. And I have to say, I love Action for Happiness. Yeah. Richard Laird and Mark Williamson and everyone are doing such great work. Yes. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I want to thank you. I'm grateful. Absolutely a pleasure. What an amazing honor it was to speak with Daniel and get his insight on some of the big questions on mindfulness. A quick reminder that in the UK, the book is called The Science of Meditation and altered traits everywhere else. For those that prefer the audio version of the book, please go to morethansound.net and search for altered traits. All links are below in the episode description for your convenience. And remember, if you'd like to help create a happier and kinder world, then please get involved with Action for Happiness. You can join thousands of others who are helping to spread a bit more happiness in their homes, workplaces, schools, and local communities. Find out more at actionforhappiness.org. Join the movement, be the change. For the full video podcast with Daniel, visit renaissancepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.